Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Elio Fred Garcia, who is author of The Power of Communication, Skills to Build Trust, Inspire Loyalty, and Lead Effectively. Today we will discuss ways to win hearts and minds. For more than 30 years, Fred has helped leaders build trust, inspire loyalty, and lead effectively. He is a coach, counselor, teacher, writer, and speaker whose clients include some of the largest and best-known companies and organizations in the world. Fred is the president of Logos Consulting Group and executive director of the Logos Institute for Crisis Management and Executive Leadership. He is based in New York and has worked with clients in dozens of countries on six continents. Fred, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello. This is a concept that I think too many of us take for granted. Communicating seems like something that we would, I'm battling for words, communicating seems like something so easy that everybody would be able to do without too much effort, and yet in fact it requires some thinking and some skill development. What would you say about that? Well, that's actually... The reason that I chose to write the book, and over more than 30 years of working with executives around the world in in multiple cultures and at multiple levels of, of complexity of organization, I have found that executives who are really smart and really accomplished uh, work very hard at being good at what they do, but all too often give no thinking whatever to communication and that that they treat communication as if it's part of the background and they don't appreciate how important it can be as part of their essential job. And then when something happens and they're unprepared for it, they communicate off the cuff and discover sometimes by losing their jobs that they weren't as ready to be a leader as they thought they were. And so the challenge is unlike Everything else an executive has to get good at. Communication is something they've been doing since they were very, very young. You know, they were talking since they were less than a year old. They were reading and writing since they were five or six. And they think they're good at it. And many of them, frankly, aren't. But even if they're basically good at it, they're not quite as good at it as they are on the quantitative things that got them to the top of their organizations in the first place. So what I tried to do in the book is what I do in my consulting practice and in my executive education teaching, and that is to help leaders through a framework of understanding what communication really is and how leaders can exercise a leadership discipline of getting good at it. Why do you think that there is that attitude? I would say in in some individuals, especially at the senior level, there's a certain disdain. Do you agree with that? For 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 the communication function or for their need to be good at communicating? Because I, I detect that disdain in both directions. Yes, absolutely. Well, well, the, part of the part of the the disdain for the communication function, and frankly, this is. This is something I spent a lot of time with with my communication students and communication clients on, is communicators have a really good track record of marginalizing themselves when they're with executives. And I I actually teach a course in the graduate communication program here in New York on how to not marginalize yourself if you're a communicator. How do you give advice 
to a non-communicator in ways that the non-communicator wants to take that advice, especially when that advice has to do with the executive, the person to whom you're giving advice, having to go out and engage the world. And, and part of the challenge is communicators marginalize themselves by going into an executive's office and using the language of marketing or public relations. And executives, frankly, don't care about press releases and they don't care about uh, message and they don't care about audience. They care about something else. They care about competitive advantage and competitive position and they care about their financial condition and they care about the relationships they have with critical stakeholders like investors and customers and regulators. And part of the challenge for communicators who, whose job is to communicate is when you're engaging an executive, you need to engage the executive on the executive's own terms and speak with a language of managerial responsibility. And so the first, the first thing to note is the communicator should never go into the executive office and talk about message or press release. The communicator should go into the executive's office and talk about what is the goal of the communication that we're trying to accomplish, who matters to us, and what we want those people to be thinking and feeling and use the vocabulary of those who matter to us and what we need the end result to be. And executives are pretty good at engaging at that, uh, but, but PR people and marketing people sometimes marginalize themselves by using internal technical vocabulary when executives want a managerial vocabulary just to be taken seriously. By the same token, executives often engage their stakeholders in ways that are woefully ineffective because they, f they fall into the same trap. They don't engage the stakeholders on their own terms. So one of the foundational principles of the book is that if we are to move audiences, we need to meet them where they are. And that means understand what they care about. And that means communicate with them about what they care about. So let's look at a, at a celebrated example from marketing from just about a year or so ago. And that has to do with Netflix. Now, Netflix, as you know, is a, is a very good company that has a very good service, and that is the distribution of television and other uh, video uh, uh, entertainment, so movies, TV shows, uh, things like that. And for the longest time, they offered a flat fee, a, a fixed-price bundle, where customers could get streaming video as much as they wanted, and they could get one-at-a-time uh, DVDs, that would come in the mail, they'd watch it, they'd pop it back in the mail, a couple days later the next DVD would come. Uh, and it was a very convenient service and it was very inexpensive, less than 10 bucks, and it, people liked it a lot. And then in July of, of 2011, Netflix sent communication to its 25 million customers and it said, oh, we're making a change. Uh, we're not going to bundle these two services together anymore. We're going to offer them separately. You can still have both of them if you want them, but they'll be separate services. And we're going to change the price. And instead of you know just under ten bucks for bundled service, we'll charge you just under eight bucks for each of these services separately. Now, if you want both, you can buy both. And then they gave the reason for it, and the reason was framed all in operational vocabulary about the workings of the company, and nothing about the customer, nothing about you know in order to get you better selection or faster download times or quality service or broaden. Uh, the offerings we offer you was all in terms of internal operational stuff. And customers reacted very badly. And one of the things that was missing from the communication was the acknowledgement that if you want to continue with the bundled service, you're going to have to pay 60% more. Customers had to do the math themselves. The other thing that was missing was any apology or even acknowledgement of inconvenience. 
so customers reacted very badly, and, and, and hundreds of thousands canceled their service, and the company reacted very badly to their customers reacting badly. And a couple of months later, the CEO attempted to apologize, uh, and he said the right things to begin with, but then he said more. And one of the things he said was, uh, not only are we going to split the services, now we're going to rename one of them. So you won't even be able to manage it through the same internet connection. You're going to have to have two separate internet accounts if you want both services. You're going to need to have two separate credit card transactions. You're going to have to have two sets of favorite lists. Essentially, we're going to make it a lot less convenient for you. Uh, and he didn't apologize. And customers w- went crazy. And in the end of it, uh, Netflix lost a million customers. And worse, their stock price fell 75% from 300 bucks to just under 70 bucks. And on the one-year anniversary, it was still down at about 70 bucks. So, so Netflix lost 75% of its market value, and they lost a million customers simply because they didn't communicate with stakeholders on a relatively routine service change and pricing change in ways that customers could appreciate. And I, I think there are real lessons there. Absolutely. This goes to the whole concept of disdain that we were talking about, this attitude that so many executives, the decision makers in the companies often have about this need to communicate. And something that you said earlier that was really interesting, which was to be aware of speaking to that executive suite in language that they related to. And that resonates very strongly because it's, in a lot of ways, what they're not doing, even in the example that you just shared with us, how can you get, say that you do go into that executive suite and, and you speak the language that they like to hear, the numbers and the things that are relevant to them, how can you get them engaged to address the interests and the needs of that audience that they're addressing, as in the Netflix case that you just shared with us? What marketers and PR people are really good at, uh, they're really good at predicting group behavior. That's, that's, what, that's what we do for a living. Uh, I, I often use the phrase, the, the best marketing and PR people are applied anthropologists, that, that what they do best is so understand the dynamics within a group and among groups that they can predict what that group is likely to do if we do X, if we do Y, or if we do Z. And the real value that marketers and communicators, whatever their title might be, brings to an executive is not the ability to craft sentences and paragraphs, however important that is, but rather something else that executives really care about. Executives really only have two foundational questions about the things that we would want to talk to them about. The first question is some version of why do they do that? Why do our investors not give us credit for, you know, the, the good company we are? Why do our customers not want to buy our product? Why do our regulators continue to torment us? Why do our employees not work as hard as they ought to and don't understand our strategy? So they often express frustration or desire about the behavior of groups that matter to the executive. And the second cluster of questions is how can we get them to do this other thing? How can we change their behavior so that we have some kind of competitive advantage? So I find that if the communicator goes into the office and starts speaking the language of communicating, that's not what the executive cares about. But if the communicator goes into the executive office and starts speaking the language of stakeholder behavior, 
Now, here's what we want our employees to be thinking and feeling. Here's what we need our customers to understand about our product. Here's what we need our regulators to understand about our integrity and our commitment to transparency. The more we can talk about the things that executives really care about that's in our domain, and that is stakeholder behavior and how to change it, the more likely executives are to pay attention and then to want to to work with us. The second step is when we have a challenge is to present options to the executive, but with every option, present a set of outcomes. So we could do A, and here's the likely set of consequences, both intended and unintended. We could do B, and here's the likely set of options, intended and unintended. And we could do C, here's the likely set of options, intended and unintended. And then the really important maneuver is not to ask the executive, which of these do you prefer? But rather to ask, which set of outcomes puts us in a better competitive position? And simply asking the executive to choose on the basis of outcomes is a very important part of elevating our game with executives. And when the executive says, which do you think we should do? Instead of responding in the language of preference, I think we should do this. We should respond in the language of outcomes. Well, if you look at the consequences of each of these options, the consequences I believe most likely get us to our desired outcome is this one, and here's why. The more we speak the language of outcomes based on stakeholder behavior, and the more we ask executives to make choices based on outcomes and stakeholder behavior, the more we are in the frame that executives really value. And it isn't, are we good communicators? Is can we actually change our competitive position among our stakeholders? So that's the first step. The second step is to be so good at predicting the future that what we predict will happen actually happens. And we we need to recall that trust is the consequence of promises that come true and predictions that come true. And the more we can show that we know what we're talking about, about changing stakeholder behavior, the more bosses are more likely to invite us back and keep asking for our counsel on things that matter to them. So so the, the way to elevate our game is to not talk about communication process, which is comfortable and we all like to do, but actually talk about stakeholder behavior and how to change it and what the outcomes are. Let's go back for a second to something very basic. What should we be trying to accomplish when we communicate? Is there a simple answer to that? The, the very simple answer, and this is the first principle of the book. The first principle of the book is communication is the continuation of business by other means. In business, we do things for a purpose. We do things on purpose. And communication should be as purpose-driven as every other element of the business. So one way that I think about communication is you only communicate in order to change something. You only communicate in order to provoke some change in some stakeholder. And the starting point is, who is the stakeholder that matters? What is the desired change in that stakeholder or stakeholder group? And then how do we make that happen? If we think of communicating as simply sending message, we'll likely fail. And and one of the the things I say in the book, and I quote some, some very prominent people on it, is sending message and telling our story 
is self-indulgent and very often counterproductive. What we really need to do is to understand our stakeholder and understand how to move them and then engage them in ways that actually do move them. So, so the, the phrase I use in the book is communication is an act of will directed toward a living entity that reacts. And instead of spending a lot of time on what is our story, we need to spend a lot of time on what is the intent, what is the purpose of engagement, who is the living entity we're trying to influence, and what do we know about them, and how do we understand them so well that we can predict their behavior in different scenarios, and then what is the reaction we're trying to provoke, and then how do we engage them in order to provoke that reaction. So communication isn't about sending message. Communication is about affecting a change in our stakeholder. And that applies whether we're doing it through a marketing channel or a public relations channel or simply as a leadership discipline. Communication is about changing something fundamental about our stakeholders. One of the things that I have seen oftentimes, even with individuals who are very capable at what they do, whether it's senior management or specialists in a variety of areas, many times the concept of communicating is alien to them in that it's not something that they do on a day-to-day basis, and it makes them very anxious. So even if you are in a position to speak their language, as you have shared with us, how do you, how do you address that discomfort so that they embrace this task that is before them in a positive way? A big part of my practice uh, as, as a coach and consultant is working with senior executives to get them to, to be good at engaging. And many of them are very, very scared of it. it uh, I, I give the example in the book of a very, very large financial institution who's a client of mine, and they got a new CFO about two and a half years ago. And he was a really good accountant who had come up through one of the big four accounting firms, and then he'd been a, an accountant at a bunch of different companies and was ultimately the senior most accountant at this company. And then he was promoted to CFO. And as CFO, he ran an organization of 2,000 people in his department. Uh, and he had to stand up in front of hundreds of them at a time and sometimes all of them connected by various technologies around the world at a time. And he had to speak in front of investors. And when he had his first uh, interaction on the stage in front of investors, uh, it didn't go well. He got very nervous. He, he, he performed very poorly. And the CEO was frankly very worried. And the CEO came to me and asked if I could carve out some time with the CFO, asked the CFO to take seriously the need to get better at communicating. And we actually spent uh, months meeting once every several weeks for three or four hours at a time, just teaching him the very basics of how to inspire confidence. Everything from how you stand in front of an audience to what you do with your hands to where you, you look. And your tone of voice, and we did exercises, you know, almost sort of uh, like what you see in the King's Speech, which is a bit over the top. But but everything from you know repeating sounds, moving his arms up and down, uh, to get him to understand how to project. And ultimately, not because of the coaching he got, but because he took this so seriously. Within a year, he was standing in front of large groups and doing a masterful job. He was standing in front of investors, and they told the CEO, "Wow, this guy's come a long way. We we have confidence in him now." And, and the way I put it in the book is it doesn't quite matter who the coach is, although there's some that are better than others. The real discipline is to take seriously the need to be really good at engaging. And if it's scary, then that's all the more reason 
to, to get good at it because unlike most other business disciplines, uh, every business leader is going to have to stand in front of an audience at some point and inspire confidence and trust. The, the, the technical people most of the time are going to do technical stuff, but eventually they're going to have to stand up. Uh, the managerial people are going to be doing managerial stuff, but eventually they're going to have to stand up. Uh, at some point, a leader is going to have to stand up in front of a group of people, and they have to be good at it, and the first impression really matters. Uh, and they need to work hard at getting good at it. There's a whole chapter in the book on the need to work hard at getting good at this. And the best leaders take it seriously and make it part of their own personal professional development plan uh, the less effective leaders just stumble along and they incrementally improve. They'll get coaching and they'll be good for a while. But unless they take it seriously, uh, unless they are committed to it, it's unlikely to work. I, I tell the very bad joke of you know, how many speech coaches does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is only one, but the bulb has to really want to change. Isn't that the truth? You t- you said earlier that the speaker, the communicator, must reach the audience where they are. What do you mean by that? Well, audiences typically don't care about what the speaker wants to talk about, <laughs> and that's that's a harsh reality for speakers to learn. And so the speaker needs to connect with the audience on terms the audience cares about. Now, Netflix is is one example. But we can, we can think of, of any number of others. The, the key for effective engagement is to understand what your audience cares about. Uh, the, the, the way I talk about it in the book is it's a fundamental mistake to think that the audience cares about what you care about, values what you value, makes decisions the way you make decisions. And if you are to move them, you need to care about what they care about. You need to uh, engage them on terms that they can appreciate. And, and sometimes this is very, very basic. I, I already talked about the Netflix example. They, they announced something that inconvenienced their customers without any acknowledgement of the inconvenience. That's really poor communication discipline. The other thing I note in the book is very often audiences react emotionally as a first reaction even to good news, to good news, to neutral news, to bad news. And executives who only speak facts and only speak data and fail to engage the audience emotionally uh, typically aren't persuasive. They may feel good that they got through the speech, but you don't see a noticeable change in the audience, whereas leaders who connect with the audience on terms the audience cares about uh, actually succeed. So, so here's an example, uh, and this is how I open the book. Uh, uh, Eleven years ago, it was uh, October of 2001, and Apple Computer was going to announce a new kind of product. And it was a product that would uh, connect to its computer line. It was small, it was portable, and it was intended to play music. Now, at the time, most music was on CDs, and you could get 8 to 12 songs on a CD. And there had emerged these things called MP3 players – but you really couldn't play very much on them, and it was really hard to use them, and it was really hard to get music for them. But what Apple Computer did is invent a new kind of device. They called it an iPod, and no one had ever heard of that before. But when they launched the device, 
Apple could have talked about many things. They could have talked about the technology that was in this new device. They could have talked about the elegance of its design and how easy it is to use the design. They could have talked about price and the relative price uh, per song in their device compared to CDs and uh, MP3 players. They could have talked about any number of things, and, and Apple is a bunch of engineers, and engineers really like to talk about engineering features, and there are also a bunch of designers, and designers really like to talk about design features. But when Steve Jobs stood out in front of the, the, the audience at the launch of this iPod, uh, he held up this little thing no bigger than a cigarette case, back when people recognized a cigarette case, uh, and he put it in his pocket. <laughs> and he said, you have in here a thousand songs, and you can put a thousand songs in your pocket. And wow, people reacted to that. They could understand a thousand songs in their pocket, and a thousand songs in their pocket. They never imagined the possibility of that. And it caught on, and it became viral. And because invention is the mother of necessity, people who never thought they'd need to carry around their entire music library with them, suddenly had to have this iPod. And that was just 11 years ago, and it changed music. It actually fundamentally changed the music industry. It changed Apple. Apple went from being primarily a computer company to being a different kind of company. A couple of years later, they actually dropped the name computer from their name. That was just Apple Inc. But mostly it changed consumers, and consumers suddenly embraced this category because they could understand what it means for them. Most technology companies default to talking about technology. What was brilliant about Apple and about Steve Jobs is he talked about what matters to the customer. You can put your entire music library in your pocket and take it anywhere you want to go. Now, that was breakthrough stuff. And in my work with clients, I try to get them to be as focused on what matters to their audience as Steve Jobs was on what would turn on his audience about the whole new product that no one had ever heard of. One of the theories or some of the theories that you relied on when you wrote the book and in your work, if I understand correctly, are in something called war fighting, which is used by the Marine Corps. Would you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, I've had the very good fortune uh, for 21 years now uh, to have as a client uh, the United States Marine Corps. And, and a couple times a year, I'll do a workshop for 50 or so uh, Marine Corps officers, mostly lieutenant colonels and colonels. Uh, and, and once a year, I'll do a workshop for all the newly promoted generals in the Marine Corps uh, on the, the, the same kinds of things I do with my corporate clients. Uh, but along the way, uh, about seven years ago, I was in Quantico, Virginia, doing uh, a workshop at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College. And during a break, I wandered into the Marine Corps bookstore, and I found a very slim little volume uh, called Warfighting, United States Marine Corps Doctrinal Publication Number 1. And I started flipping pages, and it seemed really interesting. So I bought it. It cost about six bucks. And I put it in my briefcase, uh, and I went back to, to school, and I finished my workshop. Uh, and then on the plane ride back to New York, I took out the book, and I started to read it, and a light went off above my head, and I said, wow. This is really cool. It was really cool for three reasons. Number one, it was really well written, and you don't normally find military manuals that are really well written. Second, it wasn't about fighting wars. It was about thinking clearly and understanding how to organize activities to accomplish a goal. 
And third, it was a metaphor. And I realized that by changing just a couple of words in the warfighting manual, I could create a way to understand how to be an effective communicator. Uh, so I got back to New York. A couple of months later, I was starting to teach a new course at NYU in the Master's in Public Relations program, a course on strategy. And my challenge had been to find ways to teach strategy to communicators. And I decided to take a risk. I said, well, what if I assign warfighting? And because it's a slim volume, it's a very big type, it's only about 70 pages, uh, what if I assign warfighting that they have to read before the first class? And then we can begin the first class by talking about what is strategy and how does strategy actually work and frame the entire course as a strategy course and then talk about how you apply communication to the strategy. Uh, and uh, here's what I found. Every paragraph of warfighting, if you change one or two words, is a principle on how to be an effective communicator. So the first paragraph of warfighting says this. War is fundamentally an interactive social process. Well, guess what? So is communication. <laughs> communication is fundamentally an interactive social process. Continuing. It is a process of continuous mutual adaptation, of give and take, of move and counter move. What the Marines say about war applies equally to communication. Second paragraph. We shouldn't assume that every enemy, I translate, we shouldn't assume that every audience thinks the way we think, decides the way we decide, cares about what we care about. We must reach the enemy and engage the enemy, I change it to audience, on its terms. We need to get inside the enemy audience's head and understand what the audience cares about. If you just take the warfighting principles and change a couple words, you've got a conceptual framework that works really well. Now, I, I tested this for several years with communication students learning how to be strategists. When I realized it worked really well, I decided to do it in the other direction. Can we take this idea and take non-communicators but who know how to be strategic like business executives and retrofit them to be more effective communicators through this warfighting metaphor frame? And I discovered that it works very well. And so about four years ago, I went to the Marines and said, hey, I've been doing this for a couple of years. I've been using warfighting to help communicators be strategic and help strategists be better communicators. Could I get permission to adapt this thing and to use it in, as part of my next book? And they you know, put it through the usual government processes, and I got the approval, and, and the result is the book. The book uses the warfighting principles not as the way in, but as essentially little nuggets along the way to amplify the examples of what works and what doesn't work. So when I, when I start with the Apple iPod launch, uh, I then talk about why people were so turned on by it. Uh, but then I just amplify it by citing the warfighting principle, and that is that we need to engage audiences on terms audiences care about. Uh, similarly, uh, when I talk about the need to adapt what you're saying based on changes in the environment, I go back to the warfighting principle communication is a process of continuous mutual adaptation of give and take of move and counter move. And I talk in, in the book about examples of leaders who didn't adapt. So for example, uh, back in 2007, when Facebook was still very new, uh, Facebook launched a new service called Beacon. And the Beacon offering was a shopping service. You could buy things online through Facebook. And what Beacon did is every time you would buy something, it would tell your network of friends what you had bought. And initially, people started using it, but then they realized, I don't want all my friends to know what I'm buying. 
So, for example, if I'm buying a birthday present, I don't want the recipient of the birthday present to know what I bought. Uh, uh, we also had some instances where I don't want one person to know that I bought movie tickets because they're assumed that I'm going to the movies with them. But if I go to the movies with somebody else, they'll get angry. So, so Facebook users started asking, is there some way to not have our purchases be known? Is there an opt-out? And Facebook said, we don't need an opt-out. This is a really cool service. Use it. And customers said, no, we'd really rather opt-out. And Facebook kept pushing that. and said, no, it's a really cool service. Try it. You'll like it. And they said, no, we tried it. We don't like it. We need to opt out. And for about a month, there was this back and forth between customers and Facebook. And, and Facebook said, no, we're not going to give you an opt out. Finally, Facebook yielded and created a, an opt out. But it was a peculiar kind of opt out. It was an opt out that you had to choose purchase by purchase. And it wasn't visible on the, on the site as you were making a purchase. You had to go through four or five different clicks that weren't easily findable in order to opt out of that one purchase. And then you would not have opted out of, of other purchases. And customers said, this is no good. Facebook, you got to give us a universal opt out. You got to allow us to not be part of this beacon disclosure thing. And Facebook kept saying, no, try it, try it, try it. They failed to adapt. So what did, what did Facebook users do? They created the first ever anti-Facebook Facebook page. And it got lots of traction. And, and for three months, Facebook resisted. And finally, in the end, Facebook relented and created a universal opt-out, uh, and, and Mark Zuckerberg wrote a, a, a note to his, to his users on Facebook and on his blog saying, I apologize. Uh, we mishandled this from the beginning. We mishandled uh, our relationship with you. We should have listened better, and we should have changed our approach sooner. Uh, I give him credit for saying what he said. I, I, I challenge him for having waited three months to do it. But that was the beginning of people's recognition that Facebook is, isn't taking privacy very seriously. But their failure to adapt as people resisted their offering and failure to accommodate legitimate concerns of their customers uh, was in many ways a failure of leadership, not a failure of communication, a failure of leadership, a failure of discipline, but mostly a failure of perspective, of understanding their customers and the need to adapt their offering based on their customers' feedback. Warfighting provides a really interesting conceptual framework that leaders have, have found very helpful. You know, my, my corporate clients, my CEO clients come back and say, this is really helpful because it isn't sentimental. I can actually apply this very directly to what I'm doing every single day. And I've even had, had, had clients and others tell me after they read the book, which, is, which includes an adaptation of warfighting, they've actually gone out and bought warfighting and they keep it on their desk as well because they find it's a really useful conceptual guide on how to be a good leader and how to be a disciplined leader. If we go back to the concept that you discussed earlier about meeting the audience where the audience is located, uh, and we look at the, the warfighting as well, it seems to be embracing that concept. One of the challenges that we in the U.S. and in the business environment by extension are facing increasingly is the diversity of the population. The emerging markets are getting bigger and the majority, the former majority that was the mainstream is increasingly becoming the minority. How do you adapt to those changes of diversity from a communication perspective? Well, the first is to recognize that there's cultural sensitivity that's necessary anytime you're communicating, whether you're communicating broadly or narrowly. And, and as the world is getting smaller, we're having an opportunity to communicate with people in different cultures across large distances. 
uh, and, and we need to be culturally sensitive there as well. What we're finding in the United States is the United States has always been a country of immigrants and there's always been diversity of many different forms. And, and every generation or so, there's always this big uh, 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 uprising of popular concern about certain groups and, you know, in, in, in our history as, as a nation going back hundreds of years, you know, it was the Irish, it was the Chinese, it was the Germans, uh, it was the Japanese, it was people perceived to be Middle Eastern, and now it's, it's people, uh, with Spanish sounding, uh, names, uh, and, and one of the challenges is as we are becoming more connected as a country, uh, communities that used to be geographically specific, uh, are, are no longer. They're actually dispersed broadly uh, around the country. And so, whereas before it was relatively easy to communicate uh, uh, in one way and assume that you're only talking to one community, now when you're talking publicly, you're talking to lots of communities. And so we, we, we periodically find politicians and entertainers and others saying wildly offensive things and business people saying wildly offensive things uh, uh, and not recognizing that they're being seen by lots and lots and lots of different audiences. So, so part of the challenge is if you're communicating in the current environment of connectedness and if you're communicating in a current environment where you don't need to be in the same physical location with someone uh, and there is diversity of perspective, there is diversity of language, there is diversity of culture, there is diversity of concern, but it isn't necessarily uh, only isolated to geographically specific pockets. Uh, if we're communicating broadly, we need to be sensitive to the concerns of all of our stakeholders. Uh, and workplaces now are very diverse. And things that were acceptable 12 years ago, 15 years ago, no longer are. In the early 90s, we saw that the way uh, the genders related to each other had to change. Uh, and, you know, the, the Anita Hill hearings, uh, uh, the Clarence Thomas hearings with Anita Hill, uh, suddenly introduced the notion of, of uh, sexual harassment and workplaces had to change and behaviors that were at least tolerated before uh, were seen to be no longer acceptable. We saw the same thing with LGBT communities uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s in the workplace and, and that continues to, to be the case now. We've seen that also uh, as people whose first language is not English uh, have uh, entered the, the workplace from any number of uh, uh, other cultures. And what we're seeing is executives need to appreciate that they need to engage people in ways uh, that are sensitive to the legitimate concerns of people who aren't from a homogeneous, small, narrow community, but now they're leaders of an entire company or have to appeal to customers that are very, very diverse. What advice do you give the communicator who is facing a resistant audience because of his or her background, let's just say. So if you have a communicator who is addressing an audience that is not welcoming, whether it's a gender issue or ethnicity or race or religion, whatever the issue is, sometimes you as a communicator are going to face an audience that doesn't welcome you because of who you are. What is the best way to address that? Well, I'll, I'll begin uh, by asking uh, a series of prior questions. Uh, whether it's for the reasons you articulated, because of their identity, 
or for other reasons, the choice of messenger within a corporate entity is a very important choice. And, 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 and let's take it away from the identity play for a moment and then move back into the identity play. Uh, it isn't necessarily the case that the CEO is the right person to communicate in every instance uh, when things are going wrong. And the way I put it is when you need to engage at least a, a broad audience uh, and when the stakes are high, however compelling it might be for the CEO to go out there and communicate, if the CEO isn't good at it or if the CEO has a credibility problem or if the CEO uh, is otherwise distracted and tired and unlikely to do it well in this instance – then don't have that person do it. Have whoever the most senior accountable person is who's good at it do it. Uh, and I think one of the big problems a lot of companies make in crisis is assume they got to put the CEO out there and the CEO is not very good at it. Uh, so if someone is communicating on behalf of a company and they need to engage an audience, the first question I ask is, who's the best person to engage that audience? And I'll approach it first without making judgments about identity or culture or language or race or ethnicity, I'll simply ask, who's the, the person most likely to move the audience the way we need them to? Now, if it happens that person is uh, a person with an identity that is, that is either uh, a challenge or resisted by some portion of that audience, now, part of, part of what I will advise is, well, first, let's prepare that person to be as effective as that person can possibly be, and if there are ways to segment the audience uh, so that those who aren't resistant uh, uh, are more likely to to benefit, then let's start with that group. And if then we need to deal with the resistant group, we might want to approach that resistant group differently. Uh, but if but if we have to do a single communication to all groups, then then my advice would be, well, let's arm the person to be as effective as possible. But we may need to have other channels in to the resistant group simply if we want to move that group. By the same token, uh, a big part of my work is helping those who need to engage understand how to engage. And it may be that the desired manner, you know, maybe a, a single speech in front of a very large audience isn't the best way to move the resistant folks. Maybe a smaller group meeting is the better way. I don't assume that there's a one-size-fits-all solution. And you know, to the degree that you have a plan that says we're going to communicate this way, and then you conclude, oh, well, this audience is resistant to that spokesperson. If we can't change the spokesperson or we don't want to change the spokesperson, then maybe we change the manner of engagement to make it more likely to succeed. An example that comes to mind, just to illustrate a scenario, would be a head of state or a secretary of state, as is the case in the United States, who is having to interact with diplomats and heads of state who do not view women in an equal setting or do not consider them their equals. Mm -hmm. How would you address that without removing the individual because obviously the head of state is still going to have to be the head of state or secretary and so forth? In the book I give an example of that. Uh, and, and that has to do with Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky, who was the trade representative in the Clinton administration. And, and Ambassador Barshevsky, after she left government service, uh, was interviewed by Fortune magazine for their leadership issue. Uh, and Ambassador Barshevsky uh, had a very, very tough job in the Clinton administration. She was the senior most uh, treaty negotiator on trade treaties. And if you think back to the Clinton administration, that's when we got NAFTA. That's when we got GATT. That's when we got the World Trade Organization. Uh, that's when we had bilateral treaty negotiations with Russia, which was newly non-communist. 
That's where we got bilateral trade negotiations with China. And Ambassador Barshevsky was sensitive to the fact that anytime she'd go into a room to negotiate, she was usually negotiating with men and usually negotiating with men from a culture that doesn't value the contribution that women can make as equals. And Ambassador Barshevsky also was sensitive to the fact that she is short of stature. And so she made the point of always being sure that she was impeccably dressed and groomed and always made the point of carrying herself as someone deserving to be taken seriously. So the way she put it to Fortune magazine is the body talks long before the mouth is even moving. And she made a point of carrying herself as someone to be taken seriously. Now, she also had a number of people on her team who were male and who could work around in other sessions with other people. But as the senior most representative of the United States government across the table from her counterpart from Russia or China or somewhere else, uh, she was able to negotiate some pretty big, good treaties that helped the United States quite well. That that making sure that you're as good as you can possibly be so that you level the playing field. Now, there are some who, are, who will never accept you, just as I know there are some people who never accept our president as president because of his identity. And I, I, I lament that that group is larger than I wish it were, but that's a reality. There are some people who are never going to accept you. But but there's a large number who will if they see that you're worthy of being accepted. And and I think Ambassador Barshevsky gave a good model on how to do that. You talked about body language a minute ago. What would you share with us about the role of body language and the things that you should take into account as a communicator vis-a-vis body language? But body language is actually far more important than many people whose job has the word communication in the title uh, appreciate. Uh, The way one carries oneself, one's bearing, creates a first impression. And any, for example, small, random, arbitrary movements, rubbing your hands together, uh, playing with your fingers, playing with your ring, touching your hair, touching your clothing, playing with a pencil, all of that diminishes one's stature in front of a boss or in front of an audience. And what you strive for in body language in front of a boss or in front of an audience is fluidity and the appearance of confidence so that they don't notice your body language. If they can notice what your body is doing, then you're not doing it right. And and the starting point is to eliminate marginalizing or self-sabotaging behaviors. Now, in the book, I give the example of the Wharton School of Business, uh, where I do some guest speaking uh, uh, several times a year. Uh, About 15 years ago, the Wharton School of Business uh, did a survey of its alumni and discovered that the alumni were hitting barriers about 15 years out of their MBA from one of the finest business schools in the world. And that was because they were very well trained quantitatively, but not very well trained on the interpersonal communication skills. So Wharton developed uh, a communication program that's actually very good, and every single Wharton MBA goes through a one-year business communication course that requires them to stand up in front of their classmates and present five times per semester. Uh, And they videotape the presentation, and then they play the videotape back. And what they find is really smart people 
who stand in front of an audience but who rock back and forth, who dart their eyes around the room, who don't know what to do with their hands, no matter how brilliant the content of what they're going to say, the harder it is for audiences to want to follow what they do. So what Wharton does is actually show their students how they come across in front of an audience. And in the business setting, the higher you go in the company, the more skeptical the audience and the more that self-sabotage gets in the way of persuading people. Now, we've always known, we've known for, for 45 years since the initial research was done, that when you're in front of an audience, something like 55% of the audience reaction is based on your body language and how you carry yourself in the visual imagery. 35 to 38% is based on your tone of voice and the variation in your voice. And only 7 to 10% is based on the content you actually speak. And most communicators and most business people, when they think of communication, think about the content. They don't think about the manner of delivery. But when you look at people who are really good at the manner of delivery, so folks like the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King when he was alive, or folks like President Clinton uh, who can give a good speech, what you find is their body language, their tone of voice is really engaging and there aren't any of those marginalizing behaviors. Uh, when you look at people who don't give as good a speech, they're constantly blinking, they're constantly licking their lips, they don't know what to do with their hands, they're squeezing their hands together, they're, they're rocking back and forth. No matter what they're saying, we tend not to pay attention. And what we find is when a speaker exhibits discomfort, audiences disengage. When a speaker carries himself or herself with fluidity and confidence, audiences pay attention and they don't recognize that they're paying attention, but they pay attention far more and therefore retain far more. And if your purpose is to change the audience and get them to think and feel something differently, you want them to be engaged. Those self-sabotaging behaviors not only cause them not to have confidence in you, they tend to stop paying attention and therefore don't remember what they're supposed to remember when you're done. Does your communication style, or rather should your communication style, be different if you are communicating a business message versus a general market message? What kinds of things should you take into account? It depends on who the audience is and what you want the change to be. Uh, and, and, and that could be culturally specific. It could also be if you're talking to a sophisticated business audience, probably need to carry yourself one way. If you're talking to customers who are just general folks out in the world, you probably have to carry yourself a different way. Let me give you an example. Uh, when I teach in front of a graduate school audience, uh, because I typically teach on Saturdays all day for, for eight hours, I tend to be very animated and, and tend to do a lot of things uh, just to keep audiences paying attention. Uh, but when I speak in front of a business leadership audience, I'm animated but not quite the same way. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily walking up to people and putting my face in, in their face and waving my arms and asking, well, how can you say that? I'm generally a little less in their face, literally, as well as figuratively. When I'm speaking in front of a group of folks from other parts of the world, I tend to mute it down a little more. And, I, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I was giving a speech in Washington a few years ago. And uh, there was someone in the audience who came up to me afterwards and, and started talking to me. And ultimately, that led to my being invited to go to China and to train the, the, the Chinese government leaders on how to deal with, with crises and how to maintain trust and confidence. Uh, she saw me in front of what was primarily an American 
marketing and communication audience uh, speaking and teaching and engaging. And I used a lot of music and I used a lot of video and I would walk into the audience and I would engage people directly in the audience and it worked and it actually provoked her to come up and talk to me and it, it ended up my getting a gig to go to China. When I got to China and I was ready to work with the government, I asked her, okay, you've seen me do this. What would you advise I do differently? And she said, don't jump off the stage. Stay on the stage. Be as animated, but don't actually violate their space because they won't take it well. And that was very good advice. And I'm glad I asked the question. And I'm glad she answered the question. And so I stayed on the stage. And then when I was speaking to, to government leaders in a smaller group, I decided to, to, to consult with her, but to then do something a little differently with her blessing. And that was when I invited questions, when someone would raise a hand to ask a question, I would walk to where they were and stand in front of them as they asked the question. And then I would nod my head and then go back up on the stage and answer it from there. And she said that that was very effective because it, it showed respect for the questioner. And then I would go back up and then give the answer and then I would give the answer to the entire audience. I would not have done that necessarily the same way in front of an American audience. But because I was speaking as a foreigner in their country to a Chinese government audience where respect is, is critically important, I modified my engagement to the needs of that audience. What would you say in terms of generations? One of the things that I hear a lot of discussion about is how the boomers are different from the Generation X or the Generation Y and so on and so forth. Does that play an important role? Do you really need to be that aware of the audience in terms of whether it's a specific generation uh, or any other characteristics? Uh, you absolutely do. And, and, and part of the challenge is most business leaders are talking to heterogeneous audiences. So you need to, to understand exactly who's in the audience. One of the things we find is the generation that is coming of age now, you know, I have a kid just out of college, I have another one about to go into college, they grew up with devices that we never grew up with. I, I did my master's thesis on a manual typewriter, and that's what texting was. Uh, there's a whole generation that is used to multitasking. There's a whole generation that is constantly on, on a device using their thumbs and connecting with lots of different people. But, but all the scientific research shows that there's no such thing as multitasking, that when someone thinks they're multitasking, what they're really doing is serially tasking in mini bursts. And so when they're doing one thing, they're not doing another thing. One of the challenges for leaders when you've got a younger generation in the audience is they have a very short attention span. And we need to engage them in ways that take into account that short attention span. We need to give them a reason to not look down at their texting device and to look up at us. It also means we need to get to the point quickly. It also means we need to repeat things. It also means we need to frame things in ways that are immediately understandable. The boomers may have had a higher tolerance for getting to the point. For the younger generation, if you're not getting to the point quickly, they disengage quickly. So, so I teach my clients and, and my students about Three ways to understand uh, how to engage audiences, especially short attention span audiences. The first is what's called the primacy effect. And that is audiences tend to remember the first thing they hear. So you ought to say the most important thing as soon as you have their attention because you're going to lose it quickly. 
The, the second is what is called the frequency effect. And that is audiences tend to remember the thing they hear the most. So whatever your most important point is, you ought to make it a lot just for any member of the audience to hear it several times and for the entire audience to have heard it sufficiently. And then finally, it's the recency effect. And that is people tend to remember the last thing they heard. So whatever the most important thing it is you want the audience to take away, especially if it's a short attention span audience, say it first, say it a lot, and then say it at the end, and then the chances are much better that your audience will remember the thing. that You didn't need to be that diligent with it with a boomer generation, and I'm a member of that boomer generation, but you do need to be that diligent taking frequency, recency, and, and primacy effect into account as you engage the younger audiences, Gen X, Gen Y, whatever the, the, the audience is. The, the younger the audience, the more they have grown up with distraction, and we need to account for that distraction. So this communication concept is much more complex than many folks out there realize and requires that you pay attention and that you be aware of your audience, much more so perhaps than many people realize. It requires real intentionality, and it is a discipline, and it's a leadership discipline, and it needs to be taken as seriously as every other leadership discipline. And effective leaders make getting good at it part of their priority. Ineffective leaders, frankly, think they can skate by. They've, they've been successful all their lives, and they'll just keep, keep doing what they've been doing. But then you end up with big, big blunders. So, so let's, let's look at another one. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon explosion two years ago in the Gulf of Mexico, British Petroleum uh, Chief Executive Officer uh, made a number of blunders that got worse and worse and worse when he was trying to communicate. The first was in, in the immediate aftermath of the Deepwater Horizon explosion. Uh, he said something that, that confused people. He said, it's not our fault, but it is our responsibility. And people said, well, what are you talking about? Of, of, of course it's your fault. And he said, no, it was those guys and you know, pointing to the, the operator of the rig, Transocean. And Transocean said, no, actually it was Halliburton talking to, about the subcontractor who had done the cementing. And Halliburton said, no, 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 we were working off of instructions from BP. And the first communication by the CEO of BP uh, is another example of how he probably wasn't the right person to communicate. The first communication with the CEO of BP was confusing. Second communication was, well, you need to understand that the Gulf of Mexico is a very large body of water, and the oil that's being pumped into the Gulf at the bottom of, of the Gulf, however much oil is being pumped in, it's still relatively small compared to the size of the Gulf of Mexico. And people rolled their eyes and said, I can't believe this guy's trying to say that. That didn't work at all. And pretty soon he was getting criticized and criticized and criticized for not having a clue about what people cared about. He's, by all accounts, he was a very good CEO, but he was demonstrating an inability to say things that inspired confidence. He actually was having the opposite effect. And after about three weeks of criticism, he had an internal meeting in the course of which he expressed self-pity. He said, what the heck? And he didn't say heck. He said something else. What the heck did we do to deserve this? And somebody recorded it on their on their. Uh, smartphone and posted it up on YouTube and pretty soon that went viral and it was all self-pity all the time and he decided to fix that. He said, no, no, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to go out and I'm going to tell the news media that I really care. So he went out in front of a group of cameras in, in Venice, Louisiana and he said, look, I'm sorry 
I'm sorry for the massive disruption this has caused to people's lives. You know, nobody wants this over more than I do. And then he said something else. He said, you know, I'd like my life back. And as soon as he said, you know, I'd like my life back, that was the end of his career. That was the tipping point. And, and three months after that, he was out of a job. And, and I, I, I recently done a workshop uh, with some military folks and I showed the, the BP Deepwater Horizon example. There was a Coast Guard officer there. And he said, yeah, I was at that press conference. As soon as he said that, we looked at each other. He said, no, we're not going to share the stage with this guy anymore. And he had lost the support of a really critical business partner. And that was the U.S. Coast Guard that was, that was leading the, the, the cleanup effort in the Gulf. Uh, he didn't take communication nearly as seriously as he took other things. And the end result was he was out of a job. Leaders don't have the luxury of becoming good at this when things go wrong. They need to get good at it before things go wrong. Fred, from our discussion, we've, we've reached the point where I think anybody who's listening understands that this is, this is essential, certainly for an executive, for somebody who is in charge, somebody who wants to make a change through their communication, and that it involves a learning process. What tips, what suggestions would you share with our listeners that they might be able to take back to their office, to their practice, maybe even to their personal lives, and apply well, thank you. I guess I'll, I'll say three things. The first is communication has power, but power can come back to haunt you if you don't use it right. You know, Think of power tools or anything else. If you don't know how to do it well, you can cause some serious self-inflicted harm. So you need to take it seriously. The first step of being an effective communicator is to take communication seriously and to, to make getting good at communicating well a priority – And just because we've been talking and reading and writing our whole lives doesn't mean that we're good at it. We need to actually be intentional about it. So that's the first step. The second step is to recognize that the only reason to engage an audience is to change something. So instead of asking, what do we want to say, which is how people typically begin, I advise that they ask a different question. And that is, who matters? And what do we want them to think and feel? And what will it take to get them to think and feel that? And you usually come up with a much better uh, idea of what to say when you begin from the point of view of who matters and what do we want the change to be. And then finally, uh, if we are to move people, we need to meet them where they are physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. And that means understanding our audiences and taking audiences seriously and honoring their concerns and adapting our engagement based on their concerns. So the effective communicator is disciplined, the effective communicator is intentional, and the effective communicator takes audiences seriously. The effective leader is disciplined, the effective leader is goal-oriented, and the effective leader takes audiences seriously. Thank you, Fred, for joining us from New York City. Thank you very much. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Elio Fred Garcia, who is author of The Power of Communication, Skills to Build Trust, Inspire Loyalty, and Lead Effectively, who discussed ways to win hearts and minds. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly. 
at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.